This is Shudders Inc. with Bruce Williams and Joe Edelman. Hi and welcome to episode 557 of Shudders Inc. This is Bruce Williams from ShuddersIncPodcast.com and joining me for the first time in way too long from Allentown in Pennsylvania, it is Mr. Joe Edelman. Joe, a very belated Happy New Year. How are you, mate? I'm good, Bruce. It is great to talk again. Great to hear from you. I'm... I didn't hear my specialized intro play. Oh, I hope it's it, still it around. It but, okay, good. Good. Just making sure. Yeah. Just making sure. <laughs> so other than that, I'm, I'm doing good, Bruce. How about you? How are things down under? Mate, really good. I don't know if you remember what my room used to look like, but we've moved house since we last spoke. I I heard that. Yes. Yeah. Good. They finally got tired of you. The neighbors kicked you out or, or what? <laughs> It was a case of where I'm working now is in a, a, a city in New South Wales called Newcastle, which is about two hours north of Sydney. Okay. Where we were living was at Gosford, which is about one hour, well, yeah, roughly an hour north of Sydney. But the crazy thing was that the commute from Gosford to Newcastle was actually taking about an hour 45 each way. Oh, gosh. And that was just a massive chunk of my day. And I said to Kath, I don't want to be doing this for the next, you know, 15 years. And she was ready to move house anyway. So we ended up buying this house, which is a lot closer to Newcastle. It's cut my commute in half. So it now takes me about an hour to get to work. So, uh, which is much more doable. And uh, yeah, so new room, new house. New awesome. Do, new dog. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so all oh the new goodness. stuff. Um, and, and cannot Very believe cool. it's February already. Yes. This, this year is cruising right along oh, for yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. So what have you been up to since we last spoke? Uh, you know me. I'm just looking for opportunities to really irritate people and, you know, shoot <laughs> when I can. And, no, I mean, uh, still teaching. I, I basically... Um, teaching nonstop. I, I was one of the, I think the few people that actually benefited from this crazy pandemic thing that we all went through because okay. virtual, virtual presenting is a thing. Yep. Camera clubs have realized they can, you know, they can get speakers, uh, that otherwise they would not have been able to get. So I really doing tons of presenting, Working on two book projects, um, wow. doing a, a big overhaul of my website, and still, you know, trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up, Bruce. I, I don't know. <laughs> you, you know. Totally uh, and in between it. all that, I still manage to shoot almost every day. Nice. So, yeah. Nice. Well, I actually, I, I made myself a promise, and I actually... I, I did the, the brave thing. I actually mentioned this on one of my YouTube videos so that my audience could hold me accountable. I said <laughs> at the beginning of the year, or probably late December, I said I want to make it a, a a bit of a mission that in 24 I will do more shoots, and I my aim is to do at least one shoot a month. Okay. Now, I know that's not the same as picking the camera up every day, but it's a heck of an improvement on where I've been over the last couple of years. So... Yeah, I, hey, I that's all good. I figure if I can hold myself to that and at least do 12 shoots over the course of the year, I will at least have uh, been out and have been a bit more active with the camera than I have been of late. So, yeah. Cool. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, hey, I mean, I, I a lot of my best work and best projects have come because I got ahead of myself and threw it out into the world and said I'm going to do it and then it's like crap now I got to do it or I look like a complete complete loser so yeah uh, yeah so I mean sometimes that's just what you got to do right absolutely there's a lot to be said for having you know an audience who will keep you accountable <laughs> Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, look, the reason I invited you back, obviously, as much as I wanted to catch up and it had been way too long, was the fact that you published on your website and promoted through your other social channels a month ago. Mm-hmm. This fantastic four-part essay, which I tried to paraphrase in the last episode of Shutters Inc., and I feel like I kind of butchered it. And yeah, I heard it was pretty bad. I'm just saying. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said I really need to get Joe on and give him first right of reply to at least set the record straight on what it was he was trying to say because I right. genuinely felt 
there was some really good information in what you were saying in that four-part essay. And as you alluded to it on the first post, you really do mm-hmm. need to put aside at least half an hour to absorb all of this content. Uh, for sure. It, it, there's, a, there's a lot to it, and I've never been accused of being short on words. So, <laughs> so yeah. do you want to set the record straight? What was the point of this essay, yeah. and what were you trying to say? So there's there's two points, um, and so yes, it's a it's a four part article series that is um, basically rethinking photography, more specifically exposure in the mirrorless digital age. Okay. So the overall gist is that in our industry and, and as photographers, we have done an absolutely horrible job of keeping up. And what I mean by that is, you know, we are now, so you think about this, you have to, and folks, you got to allow yourself to do a little bit of broad thinking. So if you're catching this at a time of day where you're either really busy or you're just kind of close-minded, this won't go well. So trust me, maybe have a good drink first, okay? And then, you know, this will make more sense. But, you know, if, if you step back and you think about it, we are 24 years now into the digital era. The Nikon uh, D1 was released late 1999, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, all of 2.5 megapixels. How did we ever create an image <laughs> that way, right? I mean, come on, <laughs> really? Uh, but so we're, you know, we're 24 years into this process. And we are essentially we're in the second generation of digital cameras, and that is mirrorless, right? Okay. First generation yep. were DSLRs. Now we're into mirrorless cameras, and there are very distinct differences in the way these cameras function. Not to mention all of the just generalized advancements that have occurred. So, yeah, things like eye being, autofocus and <laughs> oh whatever. my god, all the AI tools yeah. and everything else, right? Yeah. So you know that being kind of the 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 overarching foundation for this conversation. One of the things that I'm really trying to get people to get their heads wrapped around is that we all got bamboozled when it comes to exposure and how exposure works and how we should be doing it and. Even myself, I'll hold my right hand up in the air and say, you know what? I'm guilty as an educator that for probably the first 10 to 15 years of this digital era, um, I was every bit as guilty as everybody else for kind of sticking with the film thought process. And so really what I'm doing is I'm trying to, to get people to take a step back and to really look at the tools that they have in front of them, these cameras, which, you know, again, remember, folks, we call them cameras. They're computers that create images, which is really cool, but they're computers. That's what we create our images with. So one of the first things, and this is where you can kind of break it down into the things that you got to be willing to accept. As I travel and do in-person speaking or when I do my virtual speaking and, and presentations around the world, I always like to you know, ask the questions like, how many of you learned about exposure with the exposure triangle? And, and how many of you have been shooting for more than 30 years, and I can pretty much guarantee that everybody that's been shooting for more than 30 years is going to raise their hand and say, oh, yeah, yeah, the exposure training. Like, that's the yeah. first thing I learned. Well, here's the thing. We have a, a, a phrase here in the U.S. that if you're a little bit gullible, you know, you'll say to people, well, listen, if, if you believe that, I've got a bridge that I'd <laughs> like to sell you. You know, cheap, really <laughs> cheap. Yeah. So the exposure triangle is is essentially a comedy of errors. Even in the film era, it actually made no sense. But in the digital era, it's a debacle. But let me give you, let me give you some facts. And, and folks, don't take my word for any of this because I'm some guy he found on YouTube. Go do a little <laughs> bit of your own research or read the articles for yourself. I'm sure Bruce will share the, the URLs. But in 1990... So keep in mind, this is just 10 years before the first commercially available digital camera. 1990, a gentleman, an American photographer who's a very well-known author, educator, photographer, his name is Brian Peterson. 
He released a book called Understanding Photography, How to Shoot Great Photographs. Uh, it's actually a very good book. It's been through several you know, iterations now. And in this book, he talked about exposure and shutter speeds and aperture and ISO. And here's the exact quote that he had. He talks about, quote, I discussed the interrelationship between film, aperture, and shutter speed. And he goes on to say, here's where it starts. These three elements are at the heart of every exposure, and together they make up what I affectionately call the photographic triangle. Oh, okay. Now, in, in this book, uh, and by the way, he did talk a lot about the relationships between the three settings and how you could use them creatively. But it's also important to understand that in this book, there was no diagram or illustration of any kind with a triangle. Right. So that was, that was 1990. And by the way, remember, 1990, we are still pre-internet. Yeah. So let's fast forward. It took 15 years. So 2005. Right. A gentleman by the name of Jim Miyake, who at the time that he published his book... He was a full-time web developer for Alaska Airlines. That was his job. <laughs> but he happened to start uh, a web community, which even some of you folks down under may have participated in or may still participate in. It's called BetterPhoto.com. Right. And he published a book, again, his first edition of this book. This book's uh, gone through many editions since, and it's actually a great book. The book he published is called The Better Photo Guide to Digital Photography. And... He, on page 60 of his book, began by referencing Peterson's use of the phrase photographic triangle. And he went on to suggest that the triangle may be more, more sense if we call it the exposure triangle. And then just four pages later in Miyake's book, he talks about ISO and he explains that changing the ISO makes the camera more sensitive to the light coming into it. The problem is that even at that point in 2005, that statement was wrong, was completely false. Yeah. And what it did, it, it did two things. One, it mirrored what we had always learned with film. And number two, it actually mirrored the common language that was being used by the camera companies, not how the camera works. Now, I want to sidetrack you for just a minute. Yep. A, a, a couple of minutes ago, you made the statement that mm -hmm. within this, you know, photographic triangle or exposure triangle, yep. that ISO was not even a relevant thing in the film days. And I, I, I want to question right. that. Why do you say that? Because in, <laughs> because in film... There actually is a difference in sensitivity. There is. But so, okay, let's break exposure down. And we are sidetracking, folks. we still got to come back to the triangle. Sure, but, sure. So there are three settings, obviously, that we all deal with. Yep. And we have all pretty much universally, I, in, in, 19, in the 70s when I learned photography, this is how I was taught, shutter speed, aperture, and ISO are um, the settings you use for exposure. And frequently you will see typed out, Shutter speed plus aperture plus ISO equals exposure. And that's actually a, a nice short way to remember, which, by the way, folks, is a lot more effective than a triangle. But that being said, it's been inaccurate for digital photography for over 20 years because we're now 24 years into digital photography. However, a lot of people argue, and I agree with this argument that I'm about to give you, that even for film, ISO is not and never has been an exposure setting. Now, it definitely impacts your exposure setting. So let's break it down, and right. we'll start I, with film, Bruce, since you <clears throat> took me back to film. Yeah. When you chose film, you chose Tri-X at 400, or you know, Ektachrome or Kodachrome at 64 or 25. So that's a predetermined number. There's no setting. Yeah, You're okay. going to I, set I get the now. ISO yeah. in the camera to tell the camera, this is what film I'm working with. But once that film's in the camera, you have no control over that. Correct. Setting, right. Okay. right? So, so, your so really, it was semantics. 
which, uh, which is, is fine. Right. I, I get but that. But it's it's important to kind of clarify that as yeah. we get into the conversation with digital, yeah, right? Yeah, because for sure. when yeah. we look at digital cameras, it's important to understand that. Your cameras do not have varying sensitivity. No. So let me give you a little bit of history lesson first, because there are still people that will argue that point. <laughs> in the 19- On the internet? No. I know, really. In the, <laughs> for sure. In the 1970s um, and then in the 1980s, when um, Kodak and Nikon were working on digital cameras. And by the way, for what it's worth, the, the first digital sensor was created in 1975 by an engineer at Kodak. This thing was 100 pixels by 100 pixels. So it was <laughs> 0.01 megapixels. It made a black and white image that they recorded onto a cassette tape and it took 23 seconds per image to save it. Could you just imagine the internet with those stats today? Oh my God. So, but then in 1991, Kodak, along with Nikon, created the first ever digital SLR. It was the, the Kodak DCS system, the digital camera system, where they modified a Nikon F3 film camera, took out the film chamber and the winder, and put a, a digital back on it. That was a 1.3 megapixel sensor. But while all this development was occurring, yep. okay, there is actually a point to this history lesson. Okay. While all this development was occurring with the engineers... I would suggest, and this part I, I don't know for a fact, but I would suggest it was probably some smart marketing people that sat in on some meetings about these cool new developments who realized that in order to get photographers to adopt this new revolutionary technology, they would have to make this transition as smooth as possible. Because, look, I realize, folks, it's really hard to imagine photographers complaining or whining about anything or, or being afraid that something was going to ruin photography forever, like AI or, you know. Uh, and indeed, what happened when digital technology came along? Oh, uh, you know, it's going to be horrible. It's going to ruin photography. That's not photography. It's computers, all that crap. And here we are, right? So very wisely, what they did is they kept ISO, even though there is no ISO in your cameras. The only ISO that your camera has is the base ISO. So every one of you, I don't care what brand, what make, what model camera you have, your camera has one sensitivity level, period. That is what's referred to as the base ISO. Every other ISO that you can set on your camera, because I realize if you're a Sony user, you can go up to 128,000 ISO. <laughs> Every other ISO is interpreting what that increased sensitivity will look like. So Bruce, as an audio engineer, you completely understand mm -hmm. ISO is gain. It's yes. volume control, right? Turning it up, it makes the picture brighter. Turning it down, it makes the picture darker. And that that statement that I just made, folks, that's going to come in really handy as we get a little further into this conversation, yeah. using ISO to make things lighter and darker. But the camera companies, indeed, they realize, look, we've got we've to make this as easy a bridge as possible for people to cross or nobody's going to adopt these cameras. Because in the 1990s, especially, the camera companies all had a problem. This is going to start to sound really familiar, like we're repeating history. Shocker. In the 1990s, camera sales were down. Camera sales were down because how many film cameras could you buy? Yeah. How much change was happening from one year to the next in film cameras? Not a lot. Yeah. And so now, you know, fast forward, what's happening now? Hmm. Fortunately, there's a lot of suckers that because Sony says, well, we've got a new shutter, we've got this, everybody's going to run out and buy it like it's going to change their world. But the fact of the matter is we're spending thousands and thousands of dollars on cameras that have technology that is beyond what we are capable of appreciating in terms of an end result, which is kind of ridiculous, right? But they have managed to obviously get much better at marketing and the psychology behind it, and they are able to craft the right stories around it. And, and folks, challenge what I'm about to tell you. Amateurs fall for it. They go out and buy this crap. You don't see professionals buying the latest Sony camera every time they release a new Sony camera. You don't. Right. Even it's, even it's myself, was, you know, I'm, I mean, I've, I've been very vocal about the fact that I stayed with my A850 for 10 years and I sure. saw a lot of really nice bodies come and go during that time. Yep. And I always said, 
I haven't explored everything this camera can do, you know, and it yep. was it was only when I decided to make the change to mirrorless and that there were reasons for not wanting to mount my A-mount glass onto an E-mount right. body Absolutely. that I decided, yep. okay, it's time to bite the bullet and just change the whole system. But anyway, sorry, I digress. Sure. Back to your oh, story. Oh, yeah, no, that, that's it. So, so basically, we have the fact that raising your ISO makes your picture brighter, lowering it makes it darker. So one last statement about the exposure triangle. The exposure triangle, basically what it was, it was something that was meant to be very innocently a mnemonic, which is a memory device. Yeah. But here's the thing. Uh, it's not. <laughs> it's a poor memory device because a mnemonic, if you look up the definition of the word, is not actually a memory device, even though people call it that. It's meant to to help you remember the understanding of what the item does. Right. Nothing about the exposure triangle creates understanding. I mentioned it. You didn't hear the phrase exposure triangle until 2005. Hmm. Miyake's book in 2005 did not have a diagram with a triangle. The triangle itself did not appear <laughs> anywhere until 2006. Okay. And guess where it was? It was on the internet. <laughs> and if you Google the exposure triangle now and you click on the images tab, here's what you'll find. You'll find over 2 million results. If you were to go and count them, I gave up after 2,000. I found at least 2,000 variations on the exposure triangle, and people have tried very hard to create diagrams with arrows and light and dark and all that kind of stuff to show you how it all works, and they're all wrong. None <laughs> of them actually function. So it doesn't help you understand exposure at all. But what I'm going to propose, which is going to blow a lot of people's minds, especially you old timers, don't be a dinosaur, right? I'm going to propose that all the stuff that... I had to learn about exposure. The idea that if I changed my shutter speed, I had to adjust my aperture, because remember, I couldn't just adjust the film sensitivity, right? All that kind of stuff. I'm gonna propose to you that you don't even need to do that anymore at all. Okay. So, we fast forward. Yep. We're now, I mentioned we're in the second generation of digital cameras, those are the mirrorless cameras. Lots of great features worth talking about, but there's only one we need to discuss when it comes to exposure, and that is, EVF, the electronic viewfinder. What that means is that when you, for those of you that are still shooting with DSLRs, and by the way, if you're still shooting with DSLR, it's okay. You don't have to go out and buy a new camera because of this, but do understand eventually you will come over to the dark side. You're not going to have a choice, okay? So, just, you know, you might want to at least the, pay attention the, to this conversation because it will... The optical viewfinder are numbered. Exactly, right. It will impact you eventually, okay? Um, but honestly, I think the EVF, for all the stuff that people talk about with, you know, all the AI and the autofocus and, and all this stuff, I think the EVF is honestly the biggest game changer in photography, like... In, in decades, yeah. decades way beyond digital photography. The idea that I can put a camera to my eye and I'm seeing the finished image in real time is just incredible, yeah. right? But that changes the game. So now remember the history that I gave you, the camera companies decided we're just going to stay really low key. We'll keep using ISO as a phrase, even though it's not ISO, it's gain. In fact, by the way, folks, more proof in the pudding. Nikon, to this day, right now in 2024, uh, if you read my articles, I have links to the two, two pages that I'm referring to. You can go to one page on the Nikon website, and they refer to ISO as changing the sensitivity of the camera. And then you can go to another page on the, on the Nikon website, and they refer to ISO as something that increases or decreases the gain wow. with your sensor. Wow. So even on their own website, their marketing people are confused. Like, wait, what, what's, how does this work, right? So what happened, though, EVFs came out, and we all collectively, especially you know us old-timers that have been around for a while, we all collectively said, ooh, that's really cool. Yeah, it is. And then we kept on doing exposure the way we've been doing it forever. <laughs> I know I did. I, most people yeah, I know yeah. did it that way. 
And then one day I had an epiphany. And literally what it was for me, I have a nine-year-old grandson who plays baseball here in the United States. And baseball starts usually at the end of the March. It goes through, goes through spring. And they usually start at like 5, 30, 6 o'clock in the evening, which means that it's always going to get dark by the end of the game. And that time of year here in the U.S., especially, you know, it, it can be cloudy one minute, bright and sun the next, partially cloudy the next. So the light's changing nonstop, right? Yeah. But, hey, as a photographer, you deal with that, and you make the changes, right? That's what I've done my entire career. But I realized, why don't I just put this on auto ISO? Yeah. Now, for years, I was indeed this one of those photographers that said, no, you can't use auto. Auto's the four-letter word for forget about it. And I'm still not encouraging anybody to forget about it. But here's how I handle exposure now anytime I am outside of the studio. And it is not only incredibly simple... But it is much, much more effective at ensuring that I get consistently good results. And that is because of the way it makes me think. So I have a quote that I use. And here is a mnemonic that actually meets the definition of a mnemonic. Choose your shutter speed with purpose and your aperture with feeling. Then adjust the brightness with ISO. So let's break that down. Shutter speed is a purpose-driven setting. Yes, you can use it creatively if you want to do shutter drag or in-camera motion, but the overwhelming majority of your photography, shutter speed serves a purpose. You need to be able to stop whatever action is in your scene, and of course, you want to make sure that you're using a shutter speed that is fast enough so that you, the photographer, will not introduce camera motion or you want a shutter speed slow enough to blur uh, well stuff right if, if you if want to do something intent. creatively yeah. right yeah. so it's a purpose driven setting yeah aperture is an emotional setting so that's why i say choose your aperture with feeling aperture depth of field specifically right the more depth of field you have the clearer the sharper the more depth the more detail that you have and then of course there's that portion of the internet that loves that razor thin sharpness and the creamy bokeh which has this kind of storybook vibe to it so it's got much more of an emotional control and then your iso is whatever it needs to be now for those of you that I just caused terrible stress with the ISO, whatever it needs to be, take a breath. Let me, let me put your mind at ease. There's a couple things you have to understand here. Number one, cameras that are on the market today are much better at higher ISOs. Sure, oh, when I yeah. started with that Nikon D1, yeah. if I got to ISO 400, it looked like crap. Okay, yeah. That is not the case today. Yeah. Number two... Every camera on the market today, every camera, every brand, every brand, it's a mirrorless camera. You have the ability when you're shooting with auto ISO to set a maximum ISO. So if your maximum, and we're going to talk about tolerance in a second. I'll tell you how to figure out what it is because you don't want to guess at it. You need to actually do a test. It's a really easy test. But let's just say, in fact, I'll tell you right now, for my Sony a7IVs, which is what I shoot with, my ISO tolerance is 8,000 ISO. So I have that set in my camera, that's the maximum. So here's the great part. I go to a baseball game or anything. I, if it's a baseball game, I know that I want a fast shutter speed to stop the action. I generally shoot wide open, but these are telephoto lenses. So on a shorter lens, it'll be a 2.8. On a longer lens, it's 5.6, right? So I'm going to shoot wide open. So now I know I have the settings that take care of the purpose and the feeling of the shot. So all I need the camera to do is give me the brightness. It's a camera, which means it's a computer, which means it is not capable of understanding exactly how I want things to look, right? So on my Sonys, and by the way, also every camera in the market today, you can adjust where these settings are because they're configurable. They can all be customized, right? But on my Sony a7IVs, by default, the dial on the back right-hand side of the camera is the exposure compensation, compensation. dial. Yeah. So when I'm looking through my EVF at a finished image in real time, if I say to myself, oh, it looks a little dark, I just notch over one or two to make it lighter. If I think it looks a little bit bright, I notch over one or two to make it darker. Because, yes, the cameras can be fooled. So I'm not encourage you set it and forget it auto 
okay, we're letting the camera get us in the ballpark with the auto ISO, and then we're using exposure compensation on every single shot we're considering. Is this too light, too dark, or just right? So here's the best part. And you all need to be honest with yourself. I don't care if you shoot wildlife, landscapes, if you shoot sports, whatever, and you've gone out and you've done a shoot, you shoot 100 frames or a couple hundred frames, and you come back and your exposures are all over the place. The beauty of it is, is I can go out and shoot a baseball game where the weather's changing, the lighting's changing, come home, download those images. My exposures are consistent straight across the board. I don't have pictures that are lighter, darker, nothing, because I'm paying attention through the whole game and adjusting it with exposure compensation. So it's a simpler workflow, but notice what's missing, folks. At no point do you hear me talking about, especially for you old timers, Here's the part that you learned that you can unlearn now. At no point do you hear me saying, well, but if I go to a faster shutter speed, I've got to change my ISO or change my aperture or any of that kind of stuff. I don't have to adjust any of that, and I don't have to know those relationships. All I have to know is shutter speed is taking care of motion aspects. Aperture is taking care of depth of field, which is going to deal with the the, um, emotional and the feeling aspects of it, and then the brightness. So especially for new photographers... This is a much easier way to learn exposure than when I learned, when literally my, my mentors back in the day, they'd write me these little charts and I had to draw lines and they'd be like, okay, so you're going to start out at 125th at F8 at 5.6, but I'm going to change your aperture to 16 and you can't change your ISO. In fact, actually, when I learned it was ASA. Yeah. So I was like, what shutter speed are you going to go to? You know, yeah. And I had, that was my quiz <laughs> and I had to learn that. And you needed to do that back yeah. then. There was really no other way around it. We don't need to do that. So part of the reasoning behind all of this is here we are, 24 years into the digital realm, second generation of cameras. We have these EVFs, and we're making it 10 times harder than it needs to be. Yeah. And in many cases, it's it's us old timers who are hanging on to the way we learned it, but the industry in general has not changed. The camera companies, they still use the same language in the camera manuals. Nothing's changed, but the cameras have changed dramatically. So, uh, you know, essentially that's the gist of it. it. It's it's a much easier, it's a much faster way to work. People will frequently say to me, well, what do you do in the studio, Joe? Well, the studio, I do actually the same thing I've always done. And this is a thing that a lot of beginners, it takes them a while to kind of catch up to. But the great part about being a studio photographer is when you're in the studio, you're God. Hmm. You put the light where you want it, when you want it, how high, how low, how bright, how dark, whatever. You control it. So when I'm doing a shot in the studio, I don't set up lights and then start figuring out what's my exposure. Almost everything I shoot, if you go to my website and look at my images, almost every image is shot at F8. Right. So my, my exposure in the studio, it's going to be a 250th of a second because that's the maximum shutter speed that my camera syncs at unless I'm doing shutter drag or some creative effect. Again, purpose-driven. Yep. So for studio work, the purpose is I don't want to worry about ambient light. So um, I'm shooting 250, F8. My base ISO is 100, so that's it. And then... Whatever lights, and folks, look at my images. I work with a lot of lights, five, six, eight lights in a shot. Every one of those lights is being set and adjusted to a power that meets that F8 that I'm, I'm shooting at. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a completely different process from the studio. But when I'm shooting in any other situation where I'm not using flash, my cameras never come off of auto ISO at this point. There's absolutely no reason. Since 2005, Shutters Inc. has been a labor of love, but beyond the time required to produce it, there is also a financial commitment. If you find value in the podcast and would like to help keep the servers running, hit up the Patreon link, which is in the show notes. Even a couple of dollars a month will help. Much appreciated. Now, back to the podcast. And I would posit that there is another benefit here that I don't think you even mentioned in your fantastic four-part essay and that is and and i'm speaking from personal experience here i've been out shooting you know like to use your example right you're trying to shoot sport late in the day as the light is failing Mm -hmm. so the quantity of light coming in through the lens is constantly varying and it's falling 
I know that in the past I've gone out to shoot something and gone, oh, I'm probably going to have to use 3200 ISO, ISO, you know, in my digital camera. Mm -hmm. And, you know, either shooting in aperture priority or shutter priority. And I will get home and I bring all those images in and I go, oh, wow. The camera set the, you know, let's say I was shooting in aperture priority. For this particular image, the camera used a shutter speed of a thousandth of a second. I really yep. could have been shooting at a much lower ISO there. Correct. And and the beauty of auto ISO is that it will do that, and you yep. could conceivably end up with less noise in the images straight out of camera because less game was applied to the ISO. Well, so um, so this applies to all photographers, but let me apologize in advance to all of you like landscape photographers and, and <laughs> wildlife photographers before I say this. There is absolutely no reason, none. Now, this is going to really freak some people out, folks. I'm serious. So do me a favor before you react. Just really think your response through because this is one of those things that I'm not trying to be cocky here, but I'm right. The rest of the industry hasn't figured this out yet. <laughs> Even even though the cameras have aperture priority and shutter priority, there is absolutely no reason in 2024 with a mirrorless camera to use either of those two settings. Those yeah. two settings no longer make any sense. Those yeah. settings were great when we had DSLRs. Yep. They made all the sense in the world. But again, what did I explain when we went from film to digital? The camera manufacturers didn't want to rock the boat to the point where people wouldn't adopt the technology. Why do we need? There is no benefit to shooting aperture priority or shutter priority settings at this point. None. And Bruce, you actually gave me a better example than the one I've been using. <laughs> so it, there, there's, there's simply no reason to do it. Yeah. But it is important. Let me talk about the ISO test because I know that there are still some people listening be like, but oh my God, high ISO. So the, the, let's talk about ISO for a second in and, and terms of noise because that's what you're all worried about, right? So let me talk about the test first. And, and I want you folks to notice as we're talking about this, we're talking about raising ISO and we're talking about noise. At no point have I said anything about using noise reduction or AI noise reduction. I'll get to that, but that is not a part of this equation. Yeah. At 8,000 ISO on my Sony A7IVs, I do not need noise reduction if my file is well exposed. Yeah. So the ISO tolerance test is really easy. And again, I know Bruce will share the links to these articles. So I have a full breakdown with a, a little video clip even of the ISO tolerance test. You want to do this with every camera model that you have. You don't have to do it with every body. I have two A7IVs. I don't need to do it with both bodies. Yeah. You want to do it with each camera model. And basically what you want to do is you want to determine what is your tolerance for noise. So there's a couple things that you have to understand. Well, actually, let me go through the steps first. Basically, I would encourage you to do it indoors. It's a, it's a lot easier. If you do it outdoors, um, you got to get a little bit crazier with the way you adjust your shutter speeds and that because there's so much light. Do it indoors. Try and find uh, something to aim the camera at where you've got some highlight area, some white area, even a window, some dark area, and then some middle tones, right? So try and find a scene that's got a little bit of that. You even like when I did mine, you'll see in my article, I, I, uh, I put a black background behind my mannequin that I use, and then I had her standing next to a window, right? So, so, so are, are we looking for a scene with enough dynamic range that you are going to clip at both ends? Is that what we're no, looking for? No, no, no. doesn't have to clip at all. Oh, okay. No, in fact, I, sorry, folks, but all that stuff about ETTR and ETTL <laughs> and histograms and all that, throw that stuff out the window, please. And here's, here's the thing, right? Number one, those of you that live by the histogram, why? Understand that the histogram, if you go with that whole bell-shaped concept in the histogram, that is designed to give you average Yes. Average sucks. Average is boring. Right? That's all that's all it does. Okay? So so anyway, 
you, and what I would do, you need to put your camera on a tripod or set it on a table, someplace where it's not going to move, right? That's the key. And for this test, you are going to do everything completely manual, right? So you're going to set your ISO to the base ISO. You are going to pick a shutter speed and an aperture with the goal being to get your meter to line up in the middle or at zero, depending on your camera brand, right? Whatever the camera says is a good exposure for that scene. That's it, okay? That's step one. Once you have it lined up, take an image. One frame, that's it. Now, you're gonna take your, let's say your base ISO is 100, you're gonna adjust your ISO to 200. Do a full stop, you don't need to do third stops, there's really not a lot of value to that. If you wanna do third stops, you can, but believe me, full stops will, will get you the information you need. So double the number, you go to 200 ISO, you are gonna have to adjust either the shutter speed or aperture to get the needle back into the middle. Doesn't matter which, because the camera's on a tripod, nothing's moving in your scene. We don't care about the depth of field. These are not portfolio pictures, right? So just get the needle back to the middle after you adjust the ISO. And then take one frame. You're going to continue this process all the way up. So if we started at 100, you're gonna do 200, 400, 800, 1600, 3200, 6400, et cetera, okay? Until you get to the max. There's really no value in doing like 60 or 50, you know, going below 100. Again, if you want to, knock yourself out, but it's not gonna help you. One frame at each of those ISOs, make sure your needle is in the middle. Download the images from there into your computer. Whatever software that you use for your culling, I use Adobe Bridge, it doesn't matter if it's like dark table like Bruce uses or Luminar Neo or Lightroom, whatever you use, load your images into there and you're going to open them up on the screen at 100%. Not 200, not 300, and you wanna do this on the same screen that you typically use to process your photos, right? There is no value, folks, to putting these on like a 64-inch screen at 200% and leaning in so that you're three inches from the screen. That's not going to help you because nobody's ever going to see your images that way, ever, right? So 100% sit at the distance that you would normally sit at, and you're just going to start to go up the line, 100, 200, 400, and you're going to find the first image that you get to where it's like, no way in hell I would ever show that to anybody. That's it. That's, that's beyond my limit. And so whatever the next ISO below that was, that one is your ISO tolerance. Okay? So that's the number that you are going to set in the camera as the maximum ISO. So the beauty behind that, somebody's going to say, well, what if... I need to go higher on my ISO. The great part of the answer is, number one, how often is that going to happen? And when it does, the camera's going to tell you you need to go and switch out of, you know, auto or raise the limit. So the camera's going to force you to think through the process. So you're going to pay attention to that change. But you need to know what is that tolerance number? And again, we're doing this test without considering noise reduction software or AI noise tools. And, and the reason being, I use those tools. Let me be really clear. I, gosh, the, the noise reduction software that we have today is yeah. just amazing. Even, even just in Adobe, it's amazing, right? But here's the thing. I treat noise reduction software kind of the same way that I use image stabilization in the camera. Our cameras today have like what, five, six, eight stops of image stabilization built in, which is incredible. But you actually get a lot more mileage out of those kinds of features if you don't use them. Meaning, they're your plan B. Those features are there to save your butt when you forget to use a proper setting or if you have a situation where you have got to push the camera way beyond what are normal capabilities. That's where those settings come in great. So I reserve for me, and I would encourage you to do the same thing. I reserve the noise reduction software as the situations where I'm just going beyond my tolerance. And on in the article that I have about the, the ISO test, I actually have a, a little video breakdown where you can see the steps. So you'll understand exactly. You can see the image of mine where it gets to the point where, you know, I'm done. I can't go any further. And that becomes my ISO tolerance. Now, as someone who shoots 
exclusively in RAW, does it matter mm -hmm. when you are shooting your ISO tolerance frames whether you shoot JPEG or RAW? Does that matter? I, I would shoot in RAW. Yeah, I would absolutely shoot in RAW. Um, because in, in, in RAW, your camera's capturing everything that it's, it's going to capture. So, so um, even if you're the type of person who normally shoots exclusively in JPEG, shoot in RAW for your ISO tolerance test. So okay, I mean let's let's be realistic. If you let's say you're an event photographer and you always deliver JPEGs because you have to deliver them like at the event type yeah. thing. Yeah. I would be inclined to say do the test twice. Do the test for okay. JPEGs, do the test for uh, raw. raw. I mean, we have to be realistic that That actually makes a lot of sense because the image processing software that's built into the chip it's is going to play happening. a part absolutely. in how oh, the noise is represented. It, it absolutely is for yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, there, there is aside from physics, folks. There is nothing in photography that is one hundred percent of the time. Nothing. <laughs> there, are, there are always exceptions, right? Uh, certainly, the fact of the matter is, you're getting more of your money's worth out of your camera shooting a raw file because yeah. of all the the data that it's giving you and the ability to manipulate it later. But Depending on, especially if you're doing it professionally, depending on, you know, your client, your client's needs, what the deliverables are, et cetera, uh, sure, there are going to be times where the job requires JPEGs. Yeah. Done, right? Yeah. And, and so, yeah, there, there are always going to be exceptions that this process that I'm, I'm referring to, I'm, you know, I'm kind of basically navigating down the middle, which is the majority of the photography that we all do, right? Mm. Uh, there are always going to be specialized situations. Any... I'm sorry to say, folks, any photographer that's looking to be able to just turn the camera on and pick it up and everything's always perfect, you're probably still like 30 or 40 years ahead of yourself there because <laughs> the technology, it may get there. It may. I, I believe that we could have that happen. Uh, but there's still always going to be that disconnect of what's in our mind's eye compared to how is the camera trained to interpret yeah. things right that's why that's why i use the exposure compensation yeah light meters today compared to the you know 70s and 80s and 90s are amazing and they're amazingly accurate and by the way folks that also means features like spot metering center weighted metering you don't you don't have to worry about those anymore yeah. i have my i have my camera set at center weighted averaging which is the default for that sony sm4 meaning i've never changed it there's no need to change it because I, i'm viewing the image and i'm making my decisions based on that i have never in my entire career even back in the film days i've never allowed a camera to determine what is correct exposure. And if you think I'm wrong, I have two words for you to go and research. Ansel Adams. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the camera, yeah, the camera doesn't determine correct exposure. The camera can help you achieve the right exposure, but you determine correct exposure. And one of the best examples of that is is the famous Adams image of of Half Dome. Yeah, uh, you can find interviews online that he gave before he passed, where he he talks about his entire thought process with the exposure of that image, and uh, in large part, he wasn't going for reality. He didn't want reality. No, you, you'll never see Half Dome looking like it looks in that image. Uh, Ansel, Ansel Adams was the greatest Photoshop master ever, long before Photoshop existed, and he was very honest and open about that. Right? So there's no, you know, there's no hidden trickery. So yeah, uh, in that regard, light meters are a tool that get you into the ballpark. But today, especially with the technology we have, that's literally all they are. They get you, they get you close, and then you still make the final decisions. But you, you don't need a, a separate light meter. You don't need a handheld meter. You don't need any of that kind of stuff. It's right there in front of you. It's You're looking at it. And just to come back to what you were saying earlier about the fantastic noise reduction tools that we have today, mm -hmm. you know, I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast in the past. It, that is why I still maintain that shooting raw is the best decision you can make because I have raw files sure. that are now close to, you know, 15 years old that I can get much better results out of today than I could at the time that I shot them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it. it we're blessed, literally, oh. with the technology that totally. we have. And, and that's really where this conversation for me comes from, is, is that 
we kind of all get caught up. And look, I'm just as guilty as everybody else. I mean, we get caught up in how cool is this new stuff, and we just keep going forward. But we haven't taken done a good job as an industry of really taking stock of how the equipment has changed in terms of how it can actually impact the techniques that we use, right? Yeah. And and so even like like we were talking about with aperture and shutter priority, they made all the sense in the world with DSLR cameras. But with mirrorless cameras, why why would you choose one of those two settings? Because just like you mentioned, you have a situation where the camera is not necessarily going to give you the best quality that it can for that scene because it's going to make a choice that's way off what you would choose knowing better. Well, it's just doing what you've told it to do. You know, right. you've, you've told it to shoot at this ISO and you've told it that you want to shoot at a fixed aperture. And so it's going, okay, well, the yep. only thing I can control is the shutter speed. And yep. yeah, like I said, I've, I've come home, you know, on multiple occasions and realized, oh, wow, it didn't need to be that fast a shutter speed for what I was shooting at the time. I sure. really could have been two stops lower on ISO and, and had a lot less noise because of it. Yep. Yeah, anyway. I, 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 com I completely agree. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, folks, it's something to think about. Uh, the cool part is, I, I will say this, that people that have tried it, I have universally had people come back and say, this is amazing. It yeah. is so much simpler. It's easier. It's less effort. And yeah. I'm getting much more consistency in my exposures. And consistency in your exposures, folks, means that you are getting better quality out of your camera. Yeah. Period. That's yeah. the key. So yeah, we you can underexpose things ridiculously and still pull it out and post and then use noise reduction to get rid of all the noise that you introduced by, you know, <laughs> pulling a shot. But why do all that? Because this the, the net result is still that you've lost quality. And and to be clear, I, I so I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth, so please make sure you understand this. We've been talking about how great the noise reduction tools are, yeah. and they are incredible. Yeah. However, I can go on Instagram right now or Facebook or any website with photography, and I can find you a crap ton of images that obviously have been run through AI noise reduction, and the photographer was not paying attention to details and overdid it. Right. There are there are very, shall we say, obvious tells yeah. that the AI noise reduction tools do, just like even with the lens blur features that Photoshop has now, right? It actually works amazingly well up to about 30%. But the minute you get over 30%, there are obvious tells that it leaves an image. Will that get better? Of course it will. Yeah. I have no doubt that it will, right? But we're early in the process, and it's easy to get carried away with these tools. And that's why when I went through this whole process of setting up the test and everything else, I wanted to leave the software tools out of the equation because down the road, hmm. they're going to make things even easier. I mean, literally, it's not going to be that long before we will literally be able to shoot by candlelight. I remember back in the 1980s when Kodak came out with ISO 1000 speed film for the first time, and all their advertising was, you know, a candle. It was a person sitting, you know, behind right. a candle. And so, of course, every photographer, the first roll of film <laughs> that they bought, went out and lit a candle to take a picture. And then we were all universally torn when we did that because on one hand, how cool is that? I took a picture by candlelight. But on the other hand, I've never seen green that big before in my life. Okay. So, you know, it, it had very severe limitations. Those limitations are quickly going by the wayside. Yeah. But AI is not perfect yet. We are we are early in the in the you know the whole learning curve with AI. It's gonna get better. There will be some more stumbles too. I have no doubt about that. But it's here to stay and it's gonna make our photography better. Totally. Totally. Joe, a fascinating discussion, mate. Thank you so much. Anytime, Bruce. Anytime. Really appreciate it. Uh, and hopefully I've uh, you know given given you the opportunity to do it much more justice than I did. <laughs> It's all right. I'll let you slide. <laughs> uh, mate, so where can people find you on the web if they want to uh, follow what you're doing? 
Uh, easiest place to start is with my website, which is my name, joeedelman.com. From there, you'll find the links for Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all that fun stuff. So I'm pretty much on all the platforms. Nice work, mate. Well, good to chat once again. My pleasure, Bruce. Thanks for having me, always. Anytime, mate. You take care, and we'll, uh, we'll catch up soon. You do the same. Bye now. You've been listening to Shutters, Inc. For questions, comments, and feedback, email theboys at shuttersincpodcast.com.